You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. So we've been talking about Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 26 and 27, and this is from the New Living Translation. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And we've been talking about the doctrine of uh, what we call historically uh, the doctrine of humanity or the doctrine of being created in the image of God. Here's kind of a little summary of what we've been talking about. that All humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. We've been exploring how to cultivate a distinctly Christian culture within the church and also considering ways to impact our wider culture. Now, today the conversation is going to be about the question, what does it mean to be pro-life? And this is such a political question. It has come to take on such a political idea. And what I would really like to do today is begin to consider it in its more historic context of the Christian faith. And again, I'm trying to steer clear of a lot of the political questions and just really focus on the distinctiveness of this question within the Christian worldview. I did think it was interesting. I just did a quick search on the internet of the term pro-life. And I thought it was interesting that the definitions were all of what we're against. Uh, that the pro-life position is opposed to abortion. Opposed, that was one definition, the Merriam-Webster definition, opposed to legalized abortion. Uh, it's the belief that it is immoral for pregnant women to have freedom to choose. Notice how it's immoral to have freedom. That's an interesting way of thinking about that. But I think that, that what this reflects is our culture and how they see the quote-unquote pro-life position is that what we have made a stand of what we are against. And we as Christians don't always do a great job of talking about what we are for. Often we are known in our culture for what we are against. We're busy yelling. We're standing on street corners with graphic signs and we're scaring people and we're what we're against. And so today I want us to consider of what we're for. And you know, in this class, I'm always asking us to, well, let's clarify our stand. Let's not be so busy clarify, helping other people clarify their stands. Let's know what we're about. And so what does it mean to be pro-life? Here's kind of a little definition. Is that all humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. This is the historic Judeo-Christian understanding of the image of God. And that this includes even the unborn. And we would say that they are entitled to the same legal protections as any other human being. Another way of looking at this is that human rights, this idea that we've been talking about all fall, is that human rights, including women's rights, we talked about gender equality a couple of months ago, that women's rights even start in the womb, that gender equality starts in the womb. We talked about how we don't engage in a practice of killing girls just because they're girls. And that this is part of gender equality. So the question is, though, from our cultural perspective, is how pro-life do we really want to be? I think that sometimes we as Christians have a reputation of being like in a real knee-jerk reaction about being pro-life. But we don't often consider some of the ramifications of our position. And so I'm going to be asking some very hard questions today. And I'm not going to necessarily be talking about the answers. I'm just wanting to put them out there for you to think about and for you to go home and talk over lunch and see what you think. And some of these questions you might agree with and it, or disagree with in the beginning, and then you might go home and think about them and think, well, maybe I need to reconsider my position or, or vice versa. But um, from the world's perspective, from the unbeliever's perspective, they see us often as extremely hypocritical. And I think we have to be somewhat sober-minded about that, that we say often as evangelicals that we are pro-life, but then the unbeliever is very quick to point out ways that we are not actually pro-life. That's what hypocrisy is. So this is a quote that I got uh, from a recent article that was um, kind of making this point, I thought, very well. The real, and, and they're criticizing us. Okay, that's where this is coming from. 
The real argument is simply about the pro-life movement's hypocrisy. If pro-life advocates genuinely saw the un- saving unborn children as their top priority, I don't know if it's our top priority, but it's a priority, then a significant number of them would also fight in a world in which all women and men can be confident that their children's future will include education, food, and housing. Many would reject a political platform that cheers taxpayer funding of the military while simultaneously trying to cut health care funding, health care that might allow women to feel secure to bring a baby to term. And many would make contraception a central issue instead of allowing religious prudery to take precedence over the unborn babies that they are fighting for. And so this is, from the world's perspective, they are very critical of us, that we say we're pro-life, but we're really not. That we allow our party politics oftentimes to come first, of what our, whatever party that we think we align with, that that comes first rather than our worldview. And I always find it interesting when unbelievers start critiquing my worldview in a very thoughtful way. And I think, like, okay, well, there's some points here worth considering. So I'm going to kind of unpack some of this. The place I want to start is to give some historical context because the issue of pro-life is not like a new issue. This didn't like come about in 1973 or whatever with Roe v. Wade. Then all of a sudden the church cared about pro-life issues. This has been a historic part of Christianity from the beginning. And um, the practice of terminating pregnancy, it should say, the practice of terminating pregnancy and infanticide is a very ancient practice. This is not a new problem. In the Greco-Roman Empire, there was a regular practice of disposing of babies and getting rid of them. And it's hard for us to think about that. But in that world, it, it was a practice. And, but it is also very ancient of the practice of Christians valuing life and rescuing orphans and bringing them as part of their family. Now, I want to say a quick word here that um, as we get into this, I know that there's going to be some questions that we're going to talk about that are going to hit some of you in a very personal way. Um, the issue of pro-life discussions, and we're going to watch some videos here. Uh, a large part of the class today is really watching some videos that I've recorded and some interviews with some ladies here at the church about their deeply personal journey on this issue. And I want to uh, in- encourage you that I know that there's going to be some, some men and some women in this class today that pro-life issues are not just uh, a theoretical conversation. These are things that have deeply affected you. Some of you in this room have, have had to journey through the issue of abortion. Some of you have had to journey through difficult pregnancies. It may be even an unwanted pregnancy or a surprise pregnancy. And so I want to encourage you to hang in there with me because I really want this to be a conversation that has compassion and hope and healing for you if that is part of your journey. And um, so we're going to start off on a little bit of a difficult historical note, but hang in there with me because we're going to get to some stuff later that I think is going to bless you. Okay, so we're starting off with How does our culture see us, and how have Christians historically interacted on this issue? So we're going to watch a little quick video here just to set some historical precedents. This, too, is Ephesus. Just outside the gate leading to the Temple of Magnesia is the city dump standing in sharp contrast to the bustling opulence and marble-clad glitter of the city of Ephesus is this quiet, very sad place. Sad because here, among these littered relics of the past, was the place where citizens of Ephesus would come and discard their unwanted babies on the top of the trash heap. The Roman law, death by exposure, permitted the citizens of the empire to throw their unwanted babies away in places like this. And in the exposure to the heat, 
the dehydrating infants would soon pass out of this life. And it was into the sad stench of a dump like this that Christians grabbed an opportunity. History tells us that early Christians came out here and harvested these babies, took them back into their homes, and reared them. I'm wondering if you had discarded one of your babies. Perhaps walking down the street in Ephesus, you would see a follower of Jesus with three or four little children around them. And if you would wonder if one of them was yours. Needless to say, this behavior of the early church caught the attention of the Roman Empire. It made people think, these people are really different in a very compelling way. Under the cover of the Roman rule of death by exposure, Serranos of Ephesus, a world-famous gynecologist, wrote a manual for midwives. And in that manual, he described how they should measure the limbs and the bodies and the proportions of newborn babies to see if whether or not this baby was worth rearing. If the baby didn't pass the muster, then the family would bring the baby here to this dump. Perhaps the baby was deformed. Perhaps the baby was a girl. Or perhaps the baby was inconvenient. Whatever the case, death by exposure gave them the permission to unload their children to the steaming sun of these hillsides. Why would anybody want to do this? It's really hard to imagine, isn't it? But given the reality that the Temple of Artemis was full of hundreds of temple prostitutes, unwanted births were a daily event. So often these prostitutes would bring their babies out here and leave them to die. There was another reason, and that was because the equestrian class, the highest level of privileged citizens in Ephesus, who wore purple in the streets, who had all the best seats in the theater and at the games, in order to maintain your status in that upper level class, you had to have a certain amount of money in your portfolio. That was measured periodically. If you lost some money, you would be eliminated from the privileged part of society. Too many children would often drain your resources. So in order to maintain your place in the equestrian class, to be a person of purple, uh, you might want not to have too many children. And death by exposure permitted you to maintain your status. The interesting and important question is why would Christians come out here to rescue these little babies off the town dump? Well, the answer is found in the fact that, according to the book of Acts, that Christians in Ephesus were called people of the way. They were followers of Jesus, the one who came and said, I am the way, I'm the way to live. And in the life of Jesus, they had learned early on the value of children and the value of life. In a world that disdained children and pushed them away, it was Jesus who said, permit the little children to come unto me. And he also warned that if you abuse even one of these little ones, it would be better that a millstone were hung around your neck. And the value of life, he said that he himself was life and had come to give us life. So the early Christians seeing this brutal waste of infants were compelled by Jesus. They were followers of him. They would be like him in their world. And that is why they came to take these babies into their homes. And it was that difference in their lives that caught the attention of a watching world uh, that in essence became the neighborhood chatter about these Christians do these things. And it's what opened the door of people's hearts for others to hear about Jesus, who was truly the way. So that gives a little bit of a historical snippet, that this is not a problem just in our culture. 
this is something the church has been facing and talking about for as long as it's, it's lived. And this goes back even further, all the way to Genesis, that there is this idea of valuing life in our, in our tradition. And so we're going to talk about some of these, these questions that we are currently wrestling with. For example, pregnancy prevention. You know, when the pill came about in the 60s, it was the 60s, right? You all remember that? Some of us. Um, that was, it really uh, changed a lot in how our culture started to think about these things. Because women finally, for the first time, really had more control over pregnancy. And I mean, I, I didn't really have... I thought about for a few minutes, like, whether I was going to play some old Loretta Lynn songs of <laughs> here in class, because uh, I think she captured uh, it the best of, of what that looked like. Uh, uh, you know, that there was really the first time that women had an opportunity to have more of a say in, in how many children that they would have and when they would have them. And so I think that there's some very real benefits to that and that that we enjoy now but there's also some very dark downsides just as with any technology any technology that we introduce has an upside and a downside and you have to know how to weigh those out if i have a knife here there's nothing inherently wrong with the knife a knife can perform life-saving surgery on someone or it could kill someone it's, it's, the technology isn't necessarily the problem. It's the usage of the, how the human heart uses that technology. Are you with me? So uh, when we, you know, there's some dark downsides as we introduced more and more birth control. What happened, what have we seen happen in our culture is the increased proliferation of fornication and sex outside of marriage, children outside of marriage. I mean, we're to the point now that about one-third of the children born today are born with, to parents that are not married. It's a, it's a high number. And so there has been some, some I think, uh, some consequences of that. So I don't know if I want to demonize birth control, but at the same time I want to think about, you know, that it has certain consequences in how we use it and what has come about from that. Um, but here's a question for, to, to consider, is what, if any, is the church's responsibility to make birth control available to low-income women? Often, if, they're, if they don't have access to birth control, and then they're the ones most vulnerable to having so many children that it's not sustainable. And conservatives are, are often on the side of... Uh, limiting welfare benefits, but are we on the side of, of helping low-income women get birth control so that they can have more input into how many children they're having? This is a tough question. And, it's, and again, it's, uh, you know, how pro-life do we want to be? Um, whose life are we standing for? Uh, so another issue that's come up is crisis pregnancy. Often, our response to a crisis pregnancy is adoption, and adoption has a very rich history in the Christian tradition. It is the, one of the major motifs of understanding our own salvation, is that we have been adopted into God's family. And Jesus is our big brother, and we're co-heirs with him in, in the Father's household. Adoption is a deeply Christian idea. And so when we advocate for adoption as a way of preserving life, that's something that is extremely consistent with our worldview. But we also need to be attentive um, that sometimes there's other factors in the adoption that, that make it difficult. Because if you've ever been pregnant, you know that pregnancy is like nine months of transition. And you really don't even know you're pregnant for the first couple of months. And so it's really like seven months of transition. And you're trying to get ready for this big event that's, that's coming your way, and God graciously gives you time to try to figure some things out, right? But there's also missed work and, and lost income, and if you give your child up for adoption, you might need some counseling and some time to recover. And if you're a low-income woman, uh, you already have a lot of things that are not working in your favor, and it's going to be a lot of challenges, 
So we have to be very circumspect when we're telling people in a crisis pregnancy situation, well, adoption, that's, that's your deal. That's what you need to do. Well, that's a great big idea possibly for that person, but there might be some other things we need to think about to help facilitate that and make that a reality for them. So here's a question to consider is what, if any, is the church's responsibility to help make OBGYN care available to low-income women? Now, this is often the criticism of Planned Parenthood, but, but their guise is we're offering services to low-income women. And this is why crisis pregnancy centers that are often run by Christians are a, an important alternative. Um, that we have something to offer these women too. And so we're not just criticizing what we don't like, but that we're offering a positive alternative. Another factor in crisis pregnancy situations is pressuring teenage girls into abortions or pressuring any woman into an abortion, taking away their consent in adoption. These are not Christian values. We've talked a lot in the class about the importance of free will choice. And um, this, is, this is an important issue. We don't want to pressure people into making choices against their will just to try to cover up a crisis pregnancy situation. Life is messy. Sometimes we make choices that don't go very well. But the question for us as Christians is, how are we inviting God into redeeming that choice? Because that choice can have a long-term consequence. So we're going to watch an interview. Oh, here's a question is, what, if any, is the church's responsibility to someone like a teenage girl who gets pregnant but wants to find forgiveness and redemption? What about parenting classes or low-cost child care? Child care is a big issue if you're a single woman. It is a big issue. Of, uh, yeah, I'm for work. I want to work. But how do I work that out with child care and caring for my, for my child? And, you know, can you imagine the conversation in the church youth group when a girl gets pregnant? Like, what's that going to look like? How are we going to start redeeming that situation? Um, so we're going to watch an interview right now by my friend, with my friend Marianne Cott. How many of you know Marianne? Yeah, a few of you. She leads the Precept Bible Study here at church. She's my age. And um, this is an issue where she found herself in a crisis pregnancy situation. And so she's going to share a little bit about her story. I'm here with my very good friend, Mary Ann Cott. And some of you might know Mary Ann is the leader of the Precept Bible Study at our church. And uh, she's been doing that for several years. They know you as this great lady Bible teacher, but uh, they might not know that once upon a time you were going to a Christian high school. I'm going to forgive you for going to Maranatha. Ah. Right <laughs> and uh, our rival over yes, at Western Christian. Yes. But um, once upon a time, you were going to Maranatha High School, and then you found yourself in a situation of being pregnant at the age of 15. Yes. So talk to us a little bit about that season of your life and how that came about. Okay, so um, I was raised in a Christian home, and my... Um, my parents uh, divorced when I was about eight years old and that had huge impacts. But before that even happened, I had been uh, sexually abused and physically abused um, as a young child. And so that awoken some things in me and, and just kind of this hardship that kind of took me through my childhood, then I arrive, you know, in junior high, high school, trying to maneuver through the feelings of insecurity, rejection, just all that those things bring up sure. in you as yeah. a young girl um, or man, honestly, that uh, you're just trying to kind of you're just trying to kind of survive and yeah. you're looking for someone to love you and to accept you. And so, um, you know, you, you go to some of the wrong places and, uh, that's what happened. Yeah. Well, it's really vulnerable. And I think that it's important for people to understand the context in your case of your teenage pregnancy. Yeah. So what, 
were the options that were kind of presented to you at that point, like raising your child alone or abortion or adoption? Like, how did that conversation go? Well, a, abortion was never an option for me because I myself am adopted and my mother, my biological mother was a young mother. She was 17 um, when she had me. And so I couldn't even consider the idea of um, ending a life for that reason alone um, because I was given the opportunity to live and... Um, <clears throat> so that wasn't on the table. My parents were very angry at me. They were, um, they had some, you know, cruel things to say when I, um, told them. So that conversation of what are my options really didn't involve my parents. They, um, I mean, my mom was a little more present for it. We had looked into adoption and almost went in that direction. Um, but at the very end of my pregnancy, um, as circumstances laid themselves out, I ended up uh, keeping my baby. And so with that, um, I became a teenage mom. Wow. <clears throat> okay, just pause it for a second, Bob. I want to make sure that they understand what's happening. So Marianne's 15. How many remember being 15? Yes. You, I mean, I wasn't especially bright when I was 15. <laughs> no one is. <laughs> she was completely on her own when she had her son. And she had nowhere to go. She was a freshman in high school. I mean, can you picture, like, this is some adverse circumstances. So she grows up in a Christian family. She's going to a Christian high school. She finds herself pregnant. And it's like, okay, now what am I doing? Now looking back, do you feel like, wow, I'm so grateful? Like, oh, yeah. You, you know, your son's 30 now. He's 30 now. <laughs> I have a 30-year-old and I'm a mother-in-law. Yes, yes. I am so grateful. Stephen and I... Um, I was young and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, but we grew up together in many ways. And I have an incredibly close relationship with him that I couldn't even imagine not having. Mm -hmm. So I'm grateful. I'm very, very grateful for God's hand in absolutely all of the things and the circumstances in my life because um, he protected and walked me through times that... At the moment, I didn't realize he was in, but as I look back, I see how much he took care of and redeemed and restored and so was beautiful. So Stephen wasn't born into the perfect family or the perfect situation. Oh, or, gosh, no. <laughs> or, or, you know, you had, a, you had a whole livelihood, you know, laid out and what you were going to do. And because sometimes people no think plan. like... <laughs> there, was, no plan. there was no plan. There no. was no plan. But the Lord provided, your faith grew. Yeah, and you're very grateful for for what is today and seeing the Lord's hand in that. Definitely, definitely. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. The fact that Stephen survived is <laughs> he's alive. <laughs> he's alive. That's huge. <laughs> no, it's true. I literally stood. One of my most precious stories of when Stephen was born, I ended up having to have a C-section at 16, and that um, really cured me from ever wanting to do that again. So, um, <laughs> But he had to stay in the hospital because he was jaundiced, and I had to go home, which was really God's provision, because I needed to rest and get stronger after surgery. And then when I came back, I'd gone to visit him every day. I really would look at this sweet little baby who was six pounds, 11 ounces, tiny. He was premature and um, just every day wondered what in the world am I going to do? But when I went to take him home, you know, I had babysat some children, but they were always out of diapers. Like there was never, I never had an infant that I watched and I didn't have cousins or family around that I would have had absolutely any experience with. So I, um, I remember standing at the incubator and the nurse coming over to me and saying, okay, honey, well, he just needs his diaper changed. And then, you know, we can take you out to the car and get him in the car seat. And I remember just standing there looking at the baby going, oh, 
he needs his diaper changed. I mean, seriously, this is really where I was. And she came back about what seemed like an hour later, but it was probably only just a few minutes. I um, She goes, honey, you don't know how to change a diaper, do you? And I said, I don't. I mean, I really, I look like I was probably five. I looked so young and so all by myself, right? And so she, um, she so lovingly and um, totally with no judgment towards me at all helped me and taught me just a few things that I needed to know about a baby and taking care of him and changing his diaper. She probably thought, oh. <laughs> What's going to happen to the two of them? I'm letting this baby go home. <laughs> I this, know, this woman who doesn't know this child. Um, but she was so gracious and so kind. And she has absolutely no idea what that moment did for me because it was really the first moment of kindness anyone had shown me um, to that point. And, uh, and, I, and that was the Lord. Yeah. It was his hand. And that kind of makes me wonder... Because you grew up in a Christian context, what do you think as you look back like that the church, local church, maybe could have done more or better to support you in that? Like, even if your parents weren't real present for you right then, what could a church have done for somebody in your situation? Well, it's really easy to look at somebody's their, what's the right word, circumstance or situation that you can see. Like, obviously for me, I was pregnant and that was easy to look at and to see and to know. But to recognize that there's a story behind that. There's more to me than, than the result of my sin. And, and I think that for a lot of people, I don't know that they were necessarily being hard and judging as much as they just didn't know what to do. Like, sure. what do you say to them? And in my situation, being so young, I think there was twofold. Yes, you could be there for me, but I think who needed the support was my mom mm. because she was a single mom herself. And my dad had left when I was eight. And I think what happened was in that time she received a lot of of um, people pulling away from her and not supporting her and and she didn't know what to do with that and so in turn it was my fault not that that she did that intentionally towards me but there was just this huge loss of community for us because people didn't know what to do and i think that in any circumstance that we come across where we don't know what to do, we need to go to the Lord. Mm. And we need to ask him, what do you want me to do? How can I be your hands and feet in this situation? And coming alongside my mom, I think might have taught her and been there for her, for her to come alongside me mm -hmm. and been more of a support to me during that time. And then, you know, there was one woman in our church who, um, while I was pregnant, um, spent a little bit of time with me just loving me and not, um, you know, just reaching out to me and, and willing to put an arm around me and, and to talk and have some, some good conversations with me. So I'm grateful for that. I think that we tend to want to stay away from things we don't understand or, and well, they've sinned and I don't agree with their sin. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pull away because of that. And yeah. instead of maybe just drawing near to the Lord and really asking him what he wants us to do. That's so good. Yeah. And there's so much redemption. Yes. Right? It isn't about um, God's, God redeems and restores and brings us back to him and walks us through what's hard and ugly and and messy, so, so messy. And, and he was so faithful during all those times because, you know, I did. I learned how to change diapers. I learned how to become a mom. And later I worked in a pediatric office. And I, you know, he just walked me through situations that I thought when I first had him standing at that incubator thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do, to looking back now and seeing 
the relationship I had with Stephen, the relationship I have with my children, and how God redeemed and restored with my husband. I mean, Brian adopted Stephen when he was um, nine, I think, when he was nine years old. And so the story isn't over just because just because there's there's things that we have to walk through. Sure. It's not over. So it was a it was a hard hard road for her, and her story is pretty incredible. But um, I think it just highlights well the kind of some of the oikos types of questions that if somebody in your eight to fifteen finds themselves either in that situation or as Marianne talked about her mother that you know you you know someone who is a mother of a teenage daughter who's pregnant how can you kind of get past the awkwardness of that and begin to minister and maybe come around the grandmother in that situation so that she doesn't feel so ostracized and she can maybe be a support to her daughter in that difficult situation and beginning to talk about you know how uh, how's the Lord going to redeem that having a more of a long-term vision of like all right right now we're in a big messy situation but that's not the end of the story. You saw that picture at the end there with Stephen, right? And she just kept obeying the Lord and, and trying to hang in there and do what he wanted to do. And then the Lord sent Brian. And, and uh, Brian and Marianne had actually known each other in the seventh grade. And uh, Brian came back into her life and they ended up getting married. And, and, you know, it was, but it was a lot of really, really hard times. So... That's a little bit of a story about Marianne. The other more difficult side of this conversation is the issue of abortion recovery. I think that we want to be very careful in how we talk about abortion recovery because um, many, I've come to appreciate the reality that three out of five women have experienced abortions. It's a high number. And so... I didn't have an appreciation for this until I started getting into prayer ministry and started talking to women and finding out how many of them have this as a secret. And it's such a secret for them, especially in the church, because we're, we're all out in front with our pro-life conversation. And many of these women, they would say they themselves are pro-life, but at some point in their life, they made a decision that they deeply, deeply regret and they can't get past it. And they don't know if there's redemption, forgiveness, or healing for them. And so we want to include that as part of this conversation. And that if you have somebody in your oikos, assume that a certain number of women in your 8 to 15 have experienced abortion. And have probably not healed from that. So be careful how you talk about this in front of other women. You don't know what their personal story was. And if, if, if you offhandedly say, oh, you know, abortionists are all murderers, that's not a useful conversation. That doesn't bring life or healing for that person. And we can't just assume that um, it, it, well, we don't know anybody that would ever do that. It, it's, it, it is something that uh, affects more women and men than you realize because it affects the men too. They have also experienced a loss. And so uh, the question that I'm asking here is, what is the church's responsibility to help women and to help men recover from abortion and find healing? Because uh, many of you know Lamise in our class, and she actually, one of her ministries is working with in the realm of abortion recovery. And so we're going to watch a little video with Lamise right now talking about her journey through abortion and also helping other women now begin to recover from that. So this is a little conversation I recorded with Lamise a couple weeks ago. Hey everyone, this is Krista and I'm here with my friend Lamise and we're gonna talk about abortion and abortion recovery. And this is a topic that I know Lamise is passionate about and mm. wanting to help bring some hope and some love to other men and women who have gone through this journey in their life. It's a hard topic. It's yeah. an emotional topic. It's a painful topic. I think that many Christians would be surprised at how many people probably sitting in this room with them right now as they're watching this video have gone through abortions. And abortion yeah. is something that affects both 
men and women. It's not just a, a, a women's issue. It really is a, a men and women issue. Yes. And so talk to us a little bit about why this matters to you. Why does this conversation matter? It's important for me because as a non-Christian, I had three abortions. And, you know, at the time, I just thought it was my right and it was legal and it was okay, and I did it. Yeah. And so it was a long time ago. Yeah. It was before you knew the Lord. Mm-hmm. And you were living a very different lifestyle then. Yeah. And you were in situations where that was a choice that you stepped into. Mm-hmm. But even though it was legal and even though our country is telling you that it was your right, it still had a lot of emotional impact. It did. On you. And I didn't really, it, it, very close to the events, I knew that it had an emotional impact on me, but I thought, well, this, this is just something I just need to get past. Just like having an, a regular surgery, you have healing time. Just give it time, you move past, you're done. But I didn't know till more than 20 years later that it really had deep impact on me. Yeah. and affected who I am. Eventually you did come to know the Lord, but that mm-hmm. wound of that abortion was still was still there. That that effect of it was still there. Definitely there. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was there, but it was. Yeah. <laughs> so then you had to go on kind of a I imagine on another journey to mm-hmm. invite the Lord to begin to heal you from that. Yes, I did. Yeah. Well for a long time well let me just tell you briefly, right after the events I had things like nightmares, like horrible nightmares, and I had depression for about a year. Um, I just didn't care about myself anymore. I was in an abusive relationship, and my life just kind of like, even though I came out of that, my life spiraled in many ways after that, Mm. and um, there were many effects, like I never felt comfortable holding a baby, somebody else's baby. Um, I tended to continue to get in abusive relationships, and my, I think it really lowered my self-worth. About 10 years later, I become a Christian. I know I'm forgiven, and it's like a non-issue to me. It's like, well, I know that's wrong. And I eventually came to the point where I believed that abortion was always wrong in every case. But I never felt like, I felt like there's nothing I can do about it. God forgives me, and it's done. But then I did have um, sort of an emotional breakdown. God slowly peeled the layers away, and one night I just had a breakdown, and I was suicidal for probably two months. And just, ha- I had a really hard time with it. I believe there was a spirit of suicide on me. And I just could not, I had a hard time getting out of that condemnation. So even though the event was in the past, and you tried to just kind of like, well, I'm just going to move forward and act yeah. like, you know, everything's okay. The lasting impact and the emotional damage that it had on you, it really, was it was there. And even after you came to faith in Christ, it was still there, yeah. And you and you had to. T- can you tell me a little bit about the journey that God put you on to help get you to healing and wholeness? Towards that? healing, um, well, right away, I, I felt like I needed counseling because I needed to talk to somebody. I just like kept hearing this. You got you. You should kill yourself. You need to die. Kind of thoughts going on or voice. That might be the enemy. Yeah, probably was. <laughs> no, yeah, very definitely. And I was scared, so. I got counseling, I got prayer support, and then I discovered um, deep healing prayer. I mean, that that was such a God thing. I just I talked to a friend of mine, a mentor, mm. told her what was going on. She said, oh, I know this pastor who helps women with that. So my band happened to be, my church band happened to be playing at another church like a week later on a Saturday night for a service. So we went there, and in walks through the door this pastor who she was talking about. So I went and talked to him, and we set up an appointment right away because he does deep healing, prayer, and deliverance. So I went through a series of sessions with him, and that really relieved me a lot. And I got amazing healing. I just was so free and felt so okay. But through that process of a few months there where I'd had the breakdown and I got this healing, I knew also I'd learned about post-abortion healing Bible studies. And that was like, I'd never heard of anything like that. This is fascinating to me. So I had that in the back of my mind, and I thought, you know, I probably should check that out. So I found a place that offered it, um, a pro-life center, and I signed up on the list for them to call me for when it it was going to happen. And when I went to do the intake appointment, I cried through the whole thing. Hmm. And I thought, wow, I thought I was healed. (laughs) I thought I was done with this. 
And so I ended up doing it, an eight-week study that was just changed my life. I, I just could not believe how much deeper I needed to go. And the, the whole crux of the matter, really the big thing that I got out of it, is that I had not received God's forgiveness for mm-hmm. myself. thought I had, but we needed to peel off more layers, look at more issues, and I was able to allow that forgiveness deep inside. Mm-hmm. And so now, on the other side of healing, it's still, I'm sad that I did it, I have sorrow about it, but it's not um, a wound. So if somebody went through this, let's say, much like you, they went through it 20 years ago, and they've all this time has passed, mm-hmm. how would they know, like, hey, I'm not healed yet. I, I need help. I, maybe I need to go find a Bible study like that, or maybe I need inner healing. Like, mm. How could they know that? about themselves well, is there hope after 20 years or is it too late or should they just oh, not, not at look, all not not look at that most of the women who i've seen in groups where i facilitated and most of the women that i know have gone through it it's been 20 30 years since mm-hmm. it happened and it changes their lives but there's like a whole list of symptoms that you could look at to see if you're what they call post-abortive some of it is anger issues mm-hmm. tending to get in abusive relationships usually the relationship you're in when you had the abortion will dissolve and break apart because you just have this thing that you can't resolve between the two of you some people make it through that but a lot of couples break up so even if it happened a long time ago if maybe somebody somebody's watching this video right now and they're feeling themselves em- feeling emotional just in watching this that might be a big clue to them that maybe there's some unfinished oh, business yeah. there and oh, it's definitely. not too late for them to, to get healed. Nobody is unaffected yeah. but I think we go on different journeys we have varying levels of healing um, and it just is, when so much time goes by you don't realize it yeah you don't know it and it affects men too we mentioned that earlier that you know I think a lot of times the guys get overlooked Mm-hmm. that it, it's a loss yeah, it for is. them it's a great as, loss. as well. I hear a lot of men say that they, they had no choice in the matter. The, the, the girlfriend or the wife was just going to do it. Sometimes it's the other way around. The, mm-hmm. the woman is forced into it or the girl is pushed into it by a parent or a spouse. Um, but men suffer a lot of loss, and so there is healing for men too. There's mm-hmm. um, another a companion study to the women's study called um, something about father's heart. If somebody in our Oikos comes to us and, sa- and admits, like, I've had an abortion, like, how can we provide them with comfort? What would be something we could say? Or maybe what should we, what should we not say? <laughs> you know, that's a very vulnerable moment for well, a lot Well, yeah, of and, and I feel like I'm also speaking to people who are listening to this. Because, sure. I mean, statistic, current statistics are that one in three women, including in church, have had an abortion. And none of this is meant to condemn anybody or stir up anything awful and make them feel bad. We just we all make choices. We all sin. We all make wrong choices. Um, you know, sexual immorality is a big thing yeah. in in our culture now, and it's just unavoidable. And pregnancies come of that. And a woman in that situation, like me, you feel cornered. There's no choice. I felt like I could never tell my parents. I could never let anybody know I was pregnant. And it was just the easiest thing in my mind to just go early in the pregnancy and get it done with. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think when we talk to women, maybe in our oikos or even talking to yourself about it, is that um, sin is sin. And, and God loves you boundlessly. Um, and that there's healing available, and we just we need to repent and move forward. Maybe we could lead them in a prayer of forgiveness for themselves. Sure. Would that be something that maybe could begin I think so. to get them on a path of healing? Maybe encourage them to. You'll help them find a Bible study or yes. find a resource to help them go toward healing. That they don't have to live in. A space of, well, it happened a long time ago, I don't want to talk the about deep, it. The deep, dark secret that yeah. nobody knows about, never yeah. told my spouse, nobody in my family, none of my friends know. Yeah. It's big just to talk about it, just to be able to voice it and say it and and know that you're not condemned. Yeah. You're not, it's not, I, I don't know, I don't think it's any worse of a sin than all the other awful things we do. Yeah. But sometimes <laughs> the like, hardest person to forgive is ourselves yes. when we sin. Yeah. And so that can be, I found in ministry with people, when they're dealing with secrets, that can be a very powerful moment to lead them into a prayer of repentance. I uh, think so, yeah. And forgiveness of, Definitely. The, of themselves and to receive the Lord's forgiveness. And maybe express to that person, I forgive you. Mm-hmm. I love you. Mm-hmm. You know, give love to them. And 
there is, um, you know, the pro-life center that I volunteer for has ongoing studies in this. Very good. So if you come to me, or you, and it, you know, I can point you that way. Also, it's very confidential. So it's like off church campus property. It's not happening right there at church where anybody would know. Okay. Well, thanks for talking to us about this very tough and You're sensitive welcome. subject. And we hope that this will provide you with some hope. If you are somebody who's lived through an abortion experience, if you're a guy or if you're a gal, uh, that you will get on a journey with the Lord toward wholeness. The Lord, uh, he didn't just die to take away your sins. He died to help heal your emotional wounds. And that's part of what he offers you. And he wants to be in that journey with you. And so if you don't feel like you're whole in that area, invite Jesus to begin to come minister to you and, and get you on a, a on your own journey toward healing and wholeness because mm-hmm. that's part of what he has for you. So thanks for watching. Bye-bye. I'm going to kind of wrap it up here. I, I did have one more video, but I'll include it in the class thing, and I'll post it on Facebook. It's with uh, Tam Hodge, who many of you might remember uh, Dr. Hodge when he was the pastor here. Uh, Tam is married to my old youth group friend, uh, Brent, Hodge, and she has a wonderful ministry of ministering to women. Uh, She has lived through two abortions and as a teenager and has a wonderful testimony, and that was a great interview. So I'll post that online, and I'll include it in the video uh, for the class. So, Hey, everyone. This is Krista, and I want to welcome you to this little conversation I'm having here with Tam Hodge, and some of you might know Tam's husband, Brent Hodge. Brent and I grew up in the youth group together at Grace. We had many fun adventures together. And uh, Brent and I have just gotten reconnected on social media and just having a great time following his ministry. Some of you might know uh, one of their associates, Ross Loken, who used to be at our church. And they're doing some great work down in Hollywood, bringing the gospel to people down in Hollywood. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your story and your connection to pro-life issues. Well, first of all, um, August 19th, 1990, at Grace is where I first recognized my need for Jesus. Wow. So um, that's really, that's just kind of fun. This is weird. Like, I don't know. Kind of wild. This is awesome. Um, So uh, about me, well, it actually was that day in in August that really started stirring who I was and who I um, thought I was. Um, in, in all my life and growing up and, and carrying so much weight from my past and specifically to big secrets. And those are my teen abortions. And um, uh, throughout my, my walk with the Lord in those early years, I struggled a lot with self-forgiveness and accepting his forgiveness because, you know, it's the big sin right. um, um, because, you know, Christians put levels on sin, you know, stealing right. books from the office isn't quite as bad. But, um, so I just really struggled with that. And, um, one day God just had it out with me and, um, and he, I think he just was fed up with me, not, not living how he intended me to live and to, and not using those, the pains of my past, um, for his purpose. And so once I got that, I just, it it just all came clear to me that, oh my goodness, I am to help women Hmm. um, overcome their weight and their fear and their guilt from abortion. And um, so that's just, that's what I commit a lot of my time to doing. What are some things that you feel like we as evangelicals do well in terms of the pro-life conversation? Like what are some of our strengths that, hey, this is going well, more of this? I struggle with that a little bit, um, being so steeped in the ministry, you know, my husband and I, we've just been in full-time ministry since the moment we met and we've planted churches and we've been steeped into churches and all the churches we've been involved with. And even some that I've attended have no pro-life voice. Hmm. I've had no pro-life voice. Um, I remember the last church I was at for several years. The only time the pastor ever mentioned abortion was in a posture of almost hiding. So it would be like at the end of a sermon, bow your heads, pray. Okay, so I'm, my head is bowed, my eyes are closed, 
and, you know, I'm listening to him and he's like, you know, maybe you're struggling today with um, addictions. Maybe you're struggling with um, uh, self-image. Maybe you've struggled with abortions. Maybe you're struggling with porn. And so it's just like skimmed over. And, and I remember one day it hit me. Oh my goodness. The only time I've ever heard abortion spoken about in church has been when you bow your head and you close your eyes. So it's like, okay, I need to hide if we're going to talk about this. Hmm. And the problem with that is women are already hiding, you know, um, three out of five women in their lifetime will have an abortion. And that statistic doesn't change just because you're sitting in a church. They're there. Yeah. They, they need, they need some, they need to know they don't, their pastor doesn't have to have the answers. Their pastor can't have the answers for everything. Um, but there needs to be some type of narrative, some type of, I see you, I know you exist. I know the pain that you're going through and the guilt that you're carrying. I've not seen a lot of what they're doing really well. I, I personally haven't. And I've tried. I just haven't. I've seen individuals that I know in church active and loving and reaching out. But the church as a whole itself, I've not, I personally have not seen. That's really sad. I mean, because from your standpoint, then there really isn't a lot of organized strategies in local churches for how are we going to reach abortion survivors or even how are we going to articulate a coherent pro-life strategy and be a stand for the unborn? It's unfortunate because um, you have, you know, say there's 300 women in your church. It's safe to say a hundred or more of them are post-abortive. So you have, hundred post-abortive women in your church all sitting in silence feeling like they can't they can't share their truth they can't share their story and I'm, I'm here to tell you it only takes one woman to rise up and share her voice and they all just start going oh my goodness there's freedom there's hope I mean look at all the sexual assault cases right now you know it's only taken one to say me it's happened to me and now they're all rising up so women are just dying for another woman to stand up and be brave and say something. But in a church, you have to have that platform. It has been eye-opening for me to see how many women in the church abortion really does affect. And I think that many Christians would be surprised at those numbers that you're quoting there because it's not something that we talk about. But people start when you start the conversation and people kind of come out of the woodwork. Well, it's hard to talk about it because you can't throw a pamphlet about uh, post-abortive uh, healing or um, I'm considering an abortion in the foyer of your church. You know, it's, it's not like that. You know, you can do that with a lot of other things like um, blended families, you know, um, something more acceptable, something that you're not ashamed of. But so the approach has to be completely different and, and that's okay. It's just harder because it's brand new. The approach has to be different. What would be a word that you would give to even some people that are watching this video right now, and maybe they have gone through an abortion, like what would be a word that you would have for them, a word of encouragement or healing for them, or maybe some steps forward that they could take? I can only speak for me because it might, I know my story the best. I, I, I chose to beat myself up over and over every day um, for what I had done. And especially after I, ha I ended up having two children. Um, so then I felt even more guilty, you know, like why them, why, you know, or what, why didn't I do that to them? Or why did they get to live? You know, what was I thinking? You know, so you just, it's just a terrible cycle. And, but it was rooted in, I did not forgive myself. Mm -hmm. um, and forgiving isn't condoning. I, I knew what, I, I knew that I should not have done that. And I'm, I'm one of those women where, you know, there's two types of women. There's um, abortion, vulnerable women and abortion minded women. My first abortion, I was, I was totally vulnerable and the clinic knew it. And so when I got pregnant again, they made it so easy and told me how incapable I would be to have an abortion that I, the second time around, I became abortion minded. Well, fast forward to my recognizing my need for a savior, I realized how horribly wrong and dysfunctional that thinking was and how terrible it was that how easy they made it for me. Um, and so that's when I really started beating myself up over it. It's like, Oh man, I was duped and I, I, I got sucked, sucked in on it. And, um, 
Yeah. So the self, just forgiving, forgiving yourself, um, and letting your heart beat differently because when you forgiving yourself, you feel like you're, you're, you're letting go what you did, or you, you can no longer remember the child or the children that you aborted. And that's not true. It's just now you look at it differently. Um, and part of my self-forgiveness was becoming an advocate for the voiceless um, becoming an advocate for the women who had not yet have not yet experienced forgiveness. Um, and, and, and that journey is different for everybody. Um, but just to really lighten up on yourself, um, yeah. because God's not up there going, Tammy, you're such an idiot. I can't believe you did that. You know, but why would you do that? I can't even look at you. No, God was all that time going Tam, I know, I, I know what you did. I know why you did it. I know who you are now. Come on, come on, let's work through this together. And I really felt that eventually. And I just, I fell straight hard into his arms. And that's when forgiveness really equaled my freedom. That's great. Now, I know that some Christians might be very well-intentioned, but, um, you know, they, they might actually inadvertently do things that end up doing more harm to women who have been through abortions. And I'm wondering if maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about that. Like, what are some things that, man, when you're doing this, you might mean well, but you're actually hurting people that really need more of Jesus's love. Well, I think a lot of that doesn't happen one-on-one. A lot of that happens as, uh, as post-abortive women are like, on Facebook and reading things, you know, on pro-choice pages or pro-life pages. And then um, you get sucked into that middle. Um, I get really frustrated, and I'll just be honest, at both sides sometimes because they just, they pit at each other and they fight and they fight in the fight. And meanwhile, there's a woman sitting in the tension of it all, right in the middle going, but you, you're not even looking at me. You're, you're, stop fighting. There's no one has to be right. You know, they just, it, that's frustrating. So it, it's not really a one person I, I, I would want to speak to. It would just be, you can't legislate morality. You know, you can't make someone do something right just because you feel so strongly about it. If our approach was more from the posture of love you don't have to understand why a woman did what she did. You don't have to understand why she is contemplating an abortion. But darn it, you are called to love that woman regardless of the choice she makes or has made. And I think that's what we're missing because it's uncomfortable. If I really am like, I don't agree with what you're doing, it's hard for me to also love or act in love because I'm so frustrated because I don't understand. I want you to see it my way and you need to see it my way. And we forget that, I mean, I was not, I was not beckoned to the Lord because someone was yelling at me or because someone made me feel bad. I was, I was compelled to the Lord because people around me loved me and helped usher me in and God's love helped me usher in. So if we can just bring love back into the recipe a little bit, that might help a lot. Um, that, that's my biggest thing. I, I really get riled up about that. Sorry. Well, I just want to give you a chance to have a final word today. If, if there's anything that you haven't said that you feel like, oh, this is something that is so vital. I really want people to understand what, what might that be. In terms of just being in the church and this being shown in the church and assuming there's going to be several women watching this. And um, I think it's safe to assume that there are probably post-abortive women watching this and, and, um, they may have not said anything ever and, and no one in the room may know this is happening. Um, you are loved. Regardless, um, th- th- I, there isn't a level of severity um, on the sin, on that wrongdoing. Um, it, was, it was a mistake. And um, in order for you to move on, um, it's okay to share your story. Find that one safe person there's you know I just know there's we all have that one safe person that you may not feel as ready to hear your truth and your story um, and they and that may be true but it doesn't mean that um, they won't accept it and help you walk through it it's it's a, it's risky it's a gamble um, but there is there there is a courage in speaking your truth and and it's okay and, and I and I think 
the more we talk about our hurts and the more we talk about those bad choices we made, um, the less power they have over us. Um, I always tell women, the more you say it, the more you slay it. So, you know, the more we get that up and out of us, um, the easier it gets. And, and now you own it and it doesn't own you. So if you can find that one person, um, even if it's in a letter, you know, write a letter, whatever it takes, just get it out and once you that first time, you'll be amazed at how much easier it gets from there. That's good. Because that might be that pivotal kind of turning of the corner for you that you can begin to walk into greater freedom oh, after, yeah. after having that conversation. Absolutely. So, and then yeah. you'll never know who, who you help in, the, in, the, in your journey from there on out. You know, you could just blow up this whole new mission in your life um, that God's just been going, okay, I've been waiting for you to do this. Come on. Come on, girl. You've got this. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Well, thanks for talking to us. I really appreciate your time and helping us understand this issue a little bit more. So thanks. I hope that this whole conversation today will help spark your thinking as you're in Oikos situations with your 8 to 15. And number one, in thinking about, you know, when the issue of pro-life comes up, like, how do I talk about that? You know, am I saying things that if there's a woman or a guy in our group that has maybe lived through an abortion or a crisis pregnancy, like, am I saying condemning things or am I making a stand of love? And if there's somebody that's in a crisis pregnancy situation, how can I begin to show the love of Jesus? And I thought Marianne's statement of like, that nurse in the hospital was the first person in her pregnancy to ever be kind toward her. Mm -hmm. I mean, kindness is just the most foundational form of love, isn't it? So... Anyways, let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Oh, and by the way, uh, Lamise uh, left some brochures. So if you are someone who would like to find out more about abortion recovery or her, the Bible study group that she leads, um, if you feel like that's something you want to look into, you can talk to Lamise. You can get one of her brochures uh, for the resource center where she volunteers. So, all right, let's pray. Father, we are your children, and sometimes we are incredibly broken. Many of us have lived through very difficult situations in our lives. And some of us are in life with other people who are in difficult situations. We ask and we invite you to begin to meet us in that. Just meet us in our mess. Meet us in our unresolved feelings, in our difficulties, that we might begin to move toward increased healing and wholeness. Lord, this is such a difficult topic, and, and I don't want to just be about the politics. I want to really, hopefully, try to share your heart for your people and how that they can begin to share your heart for the people in their 8 to 15. Lord, I, I ask that you would just supernaturally plant some seeds in us today to bring about the kingdom of God wherever we go. That even in people's brokenness and their, their choices, that we can bring your love. We don't have to condemn people um, for their bad choices. Rather, we can point them to you and all of the redemption and forgiveness and healing that you offer. Lord, we ask that these seeds would bring about supernatural fruit for your glory and the good of our neighbor. Amen.